Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Man. You know, as Aaron said, my name is Chaz Denteno, and along with my beautiful wife, Olivia, we now lead the Santa Clarita Teen Ministry. Let's go. And I just wanted to begin by saying just an incredible thank you to the church. Uh, we have felt so warmly welcomed and so unbelievably encouraged in these last three weeks since we moved here. We have an incredible family here in Santa Clarita Valley, and we are so grateful and so blessed to be a part of it. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you for all of it. You know, I heard a rumor that there's a minister here who from time to time will preach and use chemistry analogies. And that to some it's thrilling and to others we're going through. It's the word of God. Amen. Well, you know, I got my degree in history from Cal State Long Beach which can be a similarly boring subject. So I hope to join the Pantheon there. Uh, You know, my my area of expertise, my field, the most interesting area of history I thought that I got my major in was ancient and medieval Europe, specifically England. And I can sum that up in four words. It's castles, knights, swords, and kings. And that's, that's basically all you need to know. It's just a lot of that. And I understand that a lot of people, you know, as soon as I said history, there was a a portion of the room that the eyes kind of started to glaze over. There's like flashbacks of high school and college came back and starting to shake yourselves awake. Oh, what's what's happening right now? Because a lot of people, the history that they enjoy is something like this. When the reality is most history is like this. (laughs) Weird, weird history guy. And the only reason I actually like history, I think, is because growing up, my dad was a great storyteller. And history to me, as I I read through it and as I studied it, is just a series of really well-told stories that actually happened. And I remember as a little boy, this kind of started with my dad because we would go and, and, you know, we wanted to watch a movie or something. And so we would go to the video store. Parents, this is all, you know, you're like, videos, all the teens can't video store. I'm talking Blockbuster, baby. This was before, this was like in the days, like when Blockbuster was on its way out, when Netflix still came in the mail, wasn't on your devices, like you sent away and they would mail you DVDs. We would go to Blockbuster to rent videos. And, and I was, you know, a young, young little boy and you would always go to the action horror section because those movies had the coolest covers. And so I remember I would walk up and down these horror eye and grab these just gruesome looking movies because it's like, oh, cool. And I was like nine. And I was thinking to my dad, dad, can we watch this? And he, no, <laughs> you are not. You are nine years old. Get out of here with that. And so I'm like, man, how can I, I, I want to know what this is about. I want to see it. I want something. And I remember being in the car one day and there was this movie that I had always wanted to know about from seeing in the video store. It was the movie Alien. I saw this cover every time I went into the video store and I went, one day, I'm going to know what that is, right? The tagline, like, this is a movie that came out in the 70s. For all you campus students, in the 70s, Alien came out. The tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. I mean, it just gives you chills. And so I remember asking my dad one day, hey, dad, did you, did you ever see that movie Alien? Oh, yes, yeah, and I saw that. You know, I remember seeing that in theaters when it came out. Wow, what was, what was that about? 
And he, in flawless detail, over the next, like, two hours, told me the entire, I mean, in gruesome detail, the chest bursting, and, like, I'm sitting here like, this is amazing. I I realized that was the first time I figured out how to cheat the system. So what I would do is I would go into the movie store, and I would remember the names, and then later, any time I was in the car with my dad, hey, dad, did you ever see uh, Jaws? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. What was that about? And then he would just tell me. And he told them so well that later in life, like, I would see these movies, and they were disappointing because it was like it just didn't live up to the hype, except Alien. Alien. I remember watching Alien with my dad when I was, like, 19 years old and, like, freaking out, like, palms sweaty, like, sitting there, like, this is so old, but I'm terrified. It was It was incredible. But, you know, my dad was a great storyteller, so I grew up like that. And very much so, you know, I believe that God, like me and my dad, loves a great story. And God's favorite stories are ones where the hero doesn't start out impressive in any way, shape, or form. God's favorite stories are the ones where it starts off with someone who is perceived as useless or perceived as someone just pathetic. Someone who really has low value or or shouldn't be the main character of a story at all. And yet God comes in and transforms that person into exactly who he wanted them to be in that moment to do something great. And, you know, for us, it's the exact same. If we are going to have a great legacy, it cannot be bought. It cannot be given to us. It cannot be earned. That, that is not the way that God desired for us to leave a legacy. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible reads, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You know, God has set eternity in our hearts because God desires for us to have a legacy that will last. Not a legacy that's put in a hall of fame, not a stat line that people remember, but a legacy that is eternal. And those are legacies that are forged. This morning, we're going to be walking through the life of Joseph and paralleling that with the medieval way that they made swords and the ways that God uses circumstances and suffering to really transform us into the people that he desires You guys with me this morning? So if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. You know, since their creation, swords have been the most widely accepted and universally recognized symbol of empires, kingdom, warfare, you name it. And it's interesting that swords actually are mentioned in the Bible 406 times. They appear in 41 out of 66 books of the Bible. So it's interesting when you think about, man, God has a thing for swords as well. And the great thing about swords, kind of running parallel with us, is that they start as raw materials. In the hand, they have to be put in the hands of a master smith to become the vision of excellence that he had in mind. And it all starts, like I said, with the raw materials. In Genesis 37, starting in verse 1, the Bible reads, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. 
Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father, rightly so, rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? You know, it's safe to say that Joseph was some raw materials. It's clear from these interactions that this kid was completely out of touch and nowhere near the man that God needed him to be in order to fulfill the plans that God had for him. He was prideful. He was foolish, naive, not a hard worker, and incredibly selfish. He was a young, immature, spoiled mess. And this morning, we've got to ask ourselves as we walked in and sat down and listened to the worship, where am I at today? Coming into this service, how am I doing? Because whether you're a teenage, snot-nosed little punk like Joseph was, or you've been a Christian for 30 plus years and feel like you've got it all together. God is going to put us all in the fire. My first point this morning is you must be reforged. You know, the first step to making a sword is you take these raw materials, these rectangular pieces of metal, and you weld them together in a stack. It's called a billet. And it looks something like that. And what you do is you put it in the fire, you heat it up to like 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, pull it out, and you start hammering it. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to take all these individual raw pieces of steel and you're trying to form them into a bar that you can actually use to then make a sword. And so it takes heating and hammering over and over and over again, fire and stress and pounding to draw this billet out into what you need it to be. You know, in chapter 37, Joseph's dad sends him out to the field where his brothers have been working with food, says, hey, they've been working hard. You need to go out there, take this food to them, serve them, kind of give them the refreshment they need. And so in verse 30, in chapter 37, in verse 23, right, Joseph goes out to the field to meet his brothers, and they see him coming off and start plotting to kill him. In verse 23, it says, When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. You know, Joseph goes to bring his brothers relief 
And initially, the plot to kill him turns into a plot to sell him into slavery for life. And a mourning for him that started as any other ends with him being stripped away from his family, from his comfort, from everything that was familiar to him and being cast off far away. And if this had been the end of the story, this would have been one of the more tragic stories in the Bible, I think. But God was not done with Joseph. You see, God wasn't about to let Joseph carry on with this spoiled and selfish lifestyle. He wasn't about to let him continue to live completely for himself when God had such a bigger picture in mind. He knew he had to strip him away from everything if Joseph was to become the man that God needed him to be to lead his people. He sold him into slavery, putting him in the fire, putting him under the hammer to burn out his pride, to crush his selfishness. God knew that Joseph had to be reforged in this way. His comfort, his control, his support, and his pride needed to be completely eliminated from the situation. You know, what about us? You know, if you're sitting in this auditorium today, God has brought you here to ask you the question, are you done being the ruler of one? Are you done being the ruler of yourself? Because God knew that until Joseph became a slave to his God, he was never going to achieve the legacy of greatness that God had in mind for him. And for us, following Jesus, this is neither a negotiation nor an optional thing. This is God's absolute expectation if we are going to live like disciples. This is the most arduous and time-consuming process of forging us. And I'm very familiar with this. You know, my, my very first semester of college was when I became a disciple. And I was studying the Bible. I remember it vividly, sitting down with Tommy Tang and David Molina. And every Bible study we did felt like a dagger. Like every scripture that they read, everything. Because I had grown up going to church every Sunday and thinking, man, I'm living this really good life. I had never read my Bible. I was on the high school water polo team and and lived kind of the stereotypical high school sport life of going to the parties with my teammates, getting drunk. As soon as I went to college, I started running with the fraternity crowds and just blacking out every weekend. I was sleeping with women I had never, you know, ever met. It was just, it was a mess. And yet, in the midst of all of it, I was so lonely and I was so depressed that a month into college, I was, I was considering suicide. And I remember I was living with my dad and, and I was looking at my schedule of the week and, and when he came home and when he was coming and going. And, and I realized that if I planned it out right, I remember laying in bed this night thinking, okay, if, if I were to kill myself on this day, No one would know about it for a week. Like no one would even question it. No one would find me. And getting to this really dark and scary place. So to me, as they rolled out the love of God and as they rolled out this mission and this purpose and this family, 
I remember grabbing onto it as tightly as I could because it was everything that I had wanted. But I knew the hardest part of all of this was recognizing that that meant I had to let go of control in my life. Because being a disciple of Jesus means that you no longer call the shots. Right? You don't call the shots with your money. You don't call the shots with where you're going to live. You don't call the shots with what you do with your time, your energy, where you go, what you get, who you get to marry, what you choose. Like God says jump and you say, how high? You give God the complete reins and control of your entire life. And it was only by the grace of God that on October 22nd, 2006, I got baptized and became a disciple. But it is only by God reforging us that we could become what he needs because we've been shaped so wrongly. And you go, what? what Chaz, what do you mean? How have I been wrongly shaped? This doesn't make any sense to me. Well, all of us have allowed the world in one way or another to shape who we are. Whether you've looked at the media for your style tips and the way that you dress or looked at how can I be successful in my job, made decisions based on what's the best financial move or what's the best move over here for my education or my job or my family based on the market. Whatever it was, whether it was your parents and the way that they taught you how to grow up and be religious, or even just your religiosity, if it's not based in the scriptures, you've been shapen in a way that is incorrect. And for some of us, that's hard to hear because you look at your life and you go, well, Chaz, but I I can't relate to anything that you're saying. I actually grew up with both parents and everything was great in my life. I'm successful. I have a job. I come to church. Well, that's great. Then maybe maybe you're like a wrench and you've been shaped into something that's handy and useful and overall pretty awesome. Maybe you feel like, well, Chaz, there's some areas of my life where, you know, I want it to be a little better, but I feel like overall things are going well. Maybe you're a spatula. You can make eggs and pancakes. You can scrape things off a pan. It's, you can grill. It's good. Things work well. Maybe some of us are sitting here and you know your life's a hot mess. Welcome to the shake weight. It's just a shameful thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm sorry, if you have one in your closet, it needs to relocate itself to your trash. Like, it's just a shameful. Some of us are living that shake weight life. And, you know, for the world, these things are good enough. But for God, that's not the case. These things are not good enough for God, no matter how they may resemble something useful or good. Because God's vision is this. And no matter how fancy your wrench or gold-plated your spatula, your life doesn't compare to what God wants it to be. And for the effect that he wants it to have. Church, we've got to ask ourselves this morning, how are we doing when it comes to staying in the fire? What is the hammer that God is using in your life right now to shape you? 
this month, this week, this morning, what was the hammer? And are you running from it? Are you hiding from it? Or are you embracing the heat and the pressure that God is using to shape you? You see, hiding from the hammer only ever produced half-realized dreams and a legacy that revolved around the question of what could have been. God has an incredible dream for who he wants us to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 17 and 18, Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. You know, God's dream is that we become more like him. That with every struggle, with every trial, with everything you suffer through in your life, it is shaping you. So that the next morning, you're more like Jesus. You're more like him. But like Joseph, if we're going to allow God to form us, we've got to become slaves of God. Point number two, you must be hardened. You know, the second part of the sword forging process, now you have a piece of metal in the shape of a sword and you shape it well. But now it's got to be hardened because all this fire and all this hammering has made the metal soft. It's made it weak. If you were to actually swing it at something, the metal might bend irreparably. And so you've got to harden it. And so what they do is they put it back in the fire till it's almost white hot. Pull it out and then they've got a big drum of quenching oil and they dip it into the oil and what happens is the cooling process actually changes the composition of the metal on a chemical level chemistry (laughs) hey and makes the sword able to withstand the pressure and the trauma that it needs to actually be functional and the the functionality of an of an actual Sword, not just like, you know, you watch the movies or you bought one from the Lord of the Rings and it's hanging on your wall and you know, you're like, wow, this is epic. But if I were to swing this, it would shatter and I would kill myself like it would just. But if you had an actual sword, like the ones that they made back in the day, I mean, the way that they measured like a samurai sword, a katana was a great one. A good one can cut, but a great one, you could actually sever someone shoulder to hip in one swing. I mean, that's, that's like Star Wars, like lightsaber stuff. You know what I'm saying? Or if you had a Claymore, William Wallace, for all of us who've seen Braveheart, right? That's a, that's a big deal. They, if you ever watch that show, Deadliest Warrior, which I love that show. Just, they did an experiment because there was a myth. They're like, okay, this Claymore, it's so big, it's so heavy. Like you could never actually use it in combat. And there was a myth that they tested. So they set up a bowling ball on these, like, necks of meat, right? Like a pig-like neck. I don't know what, what that would be called. We can, we'll find out at the barbecue. And so they had the bowling ball set up on the neck, and they set it up on a table in an arc. Because the myth was that if you swung this sword, you could sever three necks. Just like in one swing. 
And so they set up the experiment, and they had this guy who was, you know, a weapons reenactor, and they had him swing an actual claymore, and it went through all three. So you look at these things, and they're built to withstand and do a lot of damage, but also take a lot of punishment. And that serves very much like conviction. You know, we find Joseph in Genesis 39, if you'll turn there with me, and he's been sold into slavery. He's working for Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And for the very first time in his life, Joseph gets put to work. And he is doing really well. God is with him. God is blessing him in all he does. I don't know if Potiphar had him cleaning the weight room, but Joseph gets well built. He gets handsome. I don't know what job that, you know, you do that with. But in Genesis 39, in verse 8, he comes across the first situation that really tests his conviction. Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him. In verse 8, it says, But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. It's a setup. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and fled out of the house. And we know, for those of you who haven't read, what happens next is she is so humiliated that she frames him for rape. Tells her husband when he comes home, because she has his cloak as evidence. And Potiphar is so mad that he throws him into Pharaoh's own personal prison. You go, man, this guy cannot catch a break. Doing the right thing, standing up for God. But with Joseph, we've started to see a change. And I don't know if you guys noticed it, but Joseph has been staying in the fire. Suddenly, Joseph has become a hard worker. No one is greater in the house than he is. He's become diligent with responsibility. He's become respected instead of babied. And he's got great conviction. This was not the Joseph who was sold into slavery. And when temptation finally comes, it falls flat on its face when it tests him. And isn't that the way it usually goes? When you're in the fire, when you're in the furnace, whether it's being trained or you're suffering and you're clinging on to God with all you've got, it's kind of like sin just kind of rolls off you a little bit, like the temptation of it. It comes at you, but you're so tightly, like if I let go, I'm going to die. And it just seems to pass you by. But it's almost in moments of great victory. When you're out of the fire and you're enjoying a moment of reprieve, when Satan comes in with that voice, hey, you've been working so hard, just you need to put your feet up for a little bit. You can take a little vacation from the fire. It's okay. And suddenly being out of the fire starts to feel really good. And that sharpening and that hammering and that forging process starts to become something that we desire less and less and less. Because of this lull. And that's the temptation that Satan wants. Satan wants us out of the forge. How are we doing in those moments? When that temptation comes, 
When the temptation of walking away from training or walking away from your Bible studies, because, man, this is really hard. Walking away from that discipling that's hitting you in the exact spot that you don't want it to. And you could say, you know what, I need a little break from this. How are we doing then? Are we staying in the pocket and letting God finish its work? Those are the moments when your convictions are really being tested. When the hardness of them is being tested. Are they soft and bendable? Do you give in or do they stand firm and you stay in the fire? Romans 12 verse 1 Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Right. To test and approve. You know, all of us have passed the test from time to time, and all of us have failed the test. You know, I remember after I was baptized, I was on fire. Tommy and I were jumping in as many studies as we could possibly do, and, and things looked like they were going so well. And I remember things started to turn. There was a girl in my chemistry class who had been studying the Bible, and I had seen her at devotionals or seen her at midweeks, and You know, it was a very difficult chemistry class. And so it started with, hey, you know, I know you've been studying the Bible. Like, can we get a study group going? Like, because there's a test coming up. It's really hard. Sure, let's get a study group going. And then it was, hey, you know, do you want to study one-on-one? Can we just get extra practice in? Sure, yeah, let's do that. And then it was, hey, you want to go get lunch? Hey, you want to go to the movies? Hey, you want to do this? And eventually, I found myself neck deep in immorality because I had walked away from this and I had started to take a break and vacation myself from being open, vacation myself from listening to advice, from accepting help when the brothers saw that there was something off that was happening to me because I was keeping this all a secret. And one day, I get a call from the sister who was studying the Bible with her. She had stopped studying the Bible maybe halfway through kind of this whole episode of this immorality and stuff. So the sister calls me up one day. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Hey, so I talked to so-and-so. And there's that moment when that cold water just kind of pours down your neck. Because, of course, she had told her everything. And she goes, hey, I I called Tommy, too. You guys need to talk. Okay. So I remember sitting across the table from Tommy and from David Molina and some of the brothers, and and they're pleading with me and, and trying to get my heart to this place. And I remember my heart was so cold in that moment that I just, I said yes to everything that they said. I said, yes, that sounds good. Yes, that sounds great. Never see her again. You're right. I'm going to call her right after this and cut it off. And I remember leaving his house, getting in my car and driving straight to the girl's house. And not even thinking twice about it. And it wasn't until two weeks later when I was so racked with guilt that I couldn't sleep at night that I called Tommy just weeping 
and, and told him everything. And through that, you know, through that conversation, we were able to pray together and Tommy totally forgave me. But the damage was done. I had failed the test. I would struggle with impurity and, and with immorality for the next two years of being a disciple. And years later, I'm sitting in my pre-marriage counseling with my wife, confessing everything, going through my whole history as we got it on the table. And I remember reliving the shame all over again and seeing just the insecurity it made her feel, the devastation that just continued because of my sin. You know, unlike Joseph, I failed the test and I had to pay for it. But these are the tests that make or break our discipleship and how we respond moving forward. You see, I didn't stay in the furnace. And when the pressure came, my convictions crumbled. And there's an old proverb that I love. It says the hammer shatters glass, but it also forges steel. And the thing is about glass is that glass looks really pretty. Glass can serve as a great decoration. It can look like things are coming together, but glass is unyielding. It's unforgiving. Once broken, it cannot be put back together again. And if I could talk to just the disciples for a moment, if you're visiting with us, you're awesome. And we love the fact that you're here. But I, I want to just kind of speak to the disciples. I believe that too many of us have a glass attitude when it comes to being in the furnace and when it comes to being in the fire. Too many of us have taken ourselves out of the heat and out of the hammer. And we allow our own hearts to get to this place where, man, if a brother is bringing something up to you, he better say it in the exact right way at the right time when maybe you had a great quiet time and a great prayer time. And it's like a lunar eclipse that day. And God just gave you $50 on the ground. So you're feeling super loved. And then if the brother says something or if that sister says something, wow, yeah, you're right. But any other time we're not listening or the guard is up or it's yes, yes, yes. And we go back off. Thing is, glass is really pretty, but God doesn't use glass. And too many of us have had a glass heart and a glass attitude for way too long. The kingdom is not built on glass disciples. The kingdom is built on disciples made of iron and steel. Convictions of iron and steel that when things aren't going well, you're faithful. When you don't want to be humble, that's when you're submissive. That you say, I'm not going to be controlled by my emotions or my pride. I'm not going to be delicate. I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to handle this. This is what God was building Joseph. And can you imagine if he had been fragile? In his attitude, how quickly he would have been crushed by what God was doing in his life. And whatever's going on in your life right now, you've got to ask, am I being crushed? Am I having glass responses to the things that are happening to me? Or is the hammer making me stronger? 
Am I getting the help I need? Am I pulling the people in to help me become what God needs me to be? We've got to get back in the fire. For some of us here, you've been out of the fire maybe for a little while. Maybe you used to be hot. And this is the risk of all of us who've been in the church for a long time. Maybe you used to be hot and you're kind of running on the fumes of your glory youth days. And it's the, hey, you remember when the campus was like this? Or, hey, you remember when? When we've been kind of sitting in the corner of the forge gathering dust. And we need to get back in the thick of it. You know, I look at the marriage ministry and and I'm so fired up that that's kind of where we are in our lives now. Because the marriage ministry is so inspiring. You know, you consider that, okay, this is a ministry of disciples who range anywhere from a year to like 40 years of walking with God. The battles that that entails, the experience that that entails, how close you could be to God after walking with him for 40 years. It's like, man, that that's the ministry where stuff gets done. That's the ministry where miracles should be happening all the time because this is just so inspiring. And are we still in that place where we expect the most out of ourselves? Man, I've been walking with God 20 years. 20 years longer than, you know, some of these teens, than some of these campus students. You know, that it shouldn't be on the campus students to be the engine of the church when they're just starting to walk with God. They don't know God as well as some of us do. And that's not a dig. That's that should be our level of expectation in how we expect to move with God and what we expect to do because we know God deeply. I love that. We've got to be in the fire. And finally, you must be tempered. You know, the last step to forming a sword is you've got to temper the sword. It's formed. It's hardened now. But now... It's almost like the hardening process in all of its goodness has made the sword so strong, but also brittle. And if you hit something with it too hard, the sword actually runs the risk of shattering or snapping. And so what you've got to do is you've got to put the sword back in the fire at a lower temperature to create flexibility. To to relax the sword to where it, it goes with the flow. And when it hits things, it rebounds back into place and it's more forgiving. You know, in Genesis 39, Joseph passed the test of his convictions, finds himself in prison and in true Joseph fashion, again, becomes the head of the prison. Which I just want to say, I don't know how prisons went back in Egypt, but taking a well-built prisoner and making him the head of the prison where you don't you know, concern yourself with anything except eating lunch as the prison warden doesn't seem like the best idea, but maybe Egypt was different. Amen. I'll take it. And one day the baker and the cupbearer to Pharaoh come into the prison. And so in Genesis chapter 40 in verse eight, sorry, Genesis 40, verse four, it says the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. And after they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. 
So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret the dream. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And a long story short, Joseph is able with God to interpret their dreams, tell them what's going to happen within three days. I believe it's the cupbearer is restored to the king. The baker is executed, which is all kind of like, yay, and oh no. But Joseph, the one thing he said was, hey, when you get up there, like, don't forget about me. And what does the cupbearer do? Forgets. And so Joseph is literally left in prison again after helping these guys get out of prison for another couple years. You go, man. This guy really cannot catch a break. Like literally, he's helping people, he's moving things, he's got conviction, and yet he is still in prison. Like this is just, he's just the prison minister. He's going to be there forever. But you look at Joseph and you see the final pieces of his transformation falling into place. Because this was the very first time that Joseph had ever been put in charge of people and not a house or things. And God, even though he had made him hardworking, even though he had made him honest, the one thing that Joseph still needed was compassion. And we see a Joseph in prison who's got enough compassion to notice these two guys are more dejected on one day than any other. And who seeks to meet their needs to take care of them. He's put in charge of the most dejected, depressed and discouraged people And he's given them his full heart and serving. This was an incredible transformation from his selfishness and the way he used to be. God was using this time in prison, this tempering process to give Joseph a completely new heart and a new spirit and a new attitude. Because little did Joseph know, but God was going to bring the toughest test of his entire life in just a short time. God was going to bring Joseph back the brothers who sold him into slavery. If you'll turn with me to Genesis 45. You know, just like Joseph, at the beginning of 2017, I had no idea that that was going to be the hardest year of my life as a disciple. You know, Olivia's dad, Kevin, passed away. And in one moment, I lost one of my best friends. He had been a mentor to me. He had been a brother to me. He'd been a father to me. And no one had tempered my spirit or my heart to the extent that Kevin had. Kevin had taught me to play tennis. He had taught me to like the Packers. He had taught me how to co-lead with Olivia, even while he was praying that we would get married. We did. He had taught me how to love God through any suffering and through any situation, and he had taught me that above all, God was going to be faithful. And I look back now on my time, the three years that I had with Kevin Maines, and I see that God was giving me a spirit and an attitude and a heart that I was going to need for the greatest and yet most rewarding challenge of my life, to be the husband that I needed to be to get my wife to heaven and to be the father that I needed to be to get my daughter to heaven. And I look at this, and I look at what happened with Joseph. And we're going to come in for a landing here in Genesis chapter 45, when he finally is confronted 
with this situation. In Genesis 45 and verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. and the next five, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph's transformation is complete. And it is inspiring. I'm getting emotional reading it. It's inspiring and it's powerful. Here's a man who had every right to feel hatred, to want to get vengeance, to cast them out, to just to give them exactly what they gave him, for him to sell them into slavery. And yet his perspective and his heart and his attitude are completely changed. And he looks at them and he goes, you guys didn't send me here. God sent me here to save you. In the chapters after this, Joseph would be reunited with his father and with the rest of his family. And bringing them to Egypt, he became the ruler that God intended. Not a ruler of one, but a ruler that would save millions. And because of Joseph allowing God to reforge his legacy, his legacy includes Moses, David, and Jesus. Not from his family line, but the descendants of the brothers that he forgave and he had mercy on. Church, let us be a people who are reforged by God, whose convictions are hardened and strong and whose compassion is tempered and forgiving. And we will see even greater legacy forged by God. Amen? Amen.